Good afternoon. Yes, I would like to uh, welcome you to our Grand Rounds, Cancer Center Grand Rounds uh, series, and I would like to welcome those who are watching this uh, either online um, in, in real time or later on uh, in time as well, later today. Um, it is my uh, distinct uh, pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Michael Green uh, to as a distinguished lecturer in our Grand Round series. He has nothing to disclose in non-conflict of interest. Um, Dr. Green um, is the uh, Lambie and Sarah Adams Chair in Genetic Research, the Chair of the Department of Molecular Cell and Cancer Biology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and recently appointed as Director of the UMass Medical School Cancer Center. Uh, Dr. Green has been a Howard Hughes investigator uh, since 1994 and was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in um, 2014. And he has authored uh, 300 publications in top-tier journals where he has elucidated all aspects of gene regulation, gene expression regulation, from uh, transcription to splicing to epigenetic marks and how dysregulation of these processes can lead to pathologies such as cancer. So it is really um, our, my uh, honor to welcome Michael Green to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Well, thank, first, thanks very much for the invitation to come here. Uh, thank you for the very flattering introduction. Uh, it's been, I visited Dartmouth on several occasions, but it was at the college and not the cancer center, and it's been a really stimulating uh, visit, uh, and I'm sure it will continue to be, uh, and I look forward to um, future interactions uh, with this cancer center and hopefully collaborations. Uh, so what, what, I'm, what I'm going to do today is talk about some of the work we've been doing uh, in the lab over the past um, 10 years or so, uh, in which we try to understand um, cancer development uh, by, by using some type of functional genomics approach to identify new genes that are involved in cancer or regulatory proteins and, and try to determine then why, how they, uh, they are different for in a cancer cell from a normal cell that leads to cancer development. Um, and uh, nothing to disclose. Uh, here's the overview of the talk. I selected three projects, uh, and the three projects all have in common that they involve some kind of oncoprotein-directed regulatory pathway. Uh, they, they differ uh, very much in their level of maturity. I'll first tell you about how oncoproteins direct silencing of tumor suppressor genes. This is a very mature project, uh, most of which I'm going to, what, most of which I'm going to show you uh, is a review of what we learned and the lessons that we've learned from that. Uh, I'm going to then tell you a story about oncogenic splicing factor directed transformation. This is a new, relatively new project, unpublished. I've only talked about it one or two other places. Uh, and then I'll tell you about an oncoprotein-directed anti-cancer prevention mechanism. This started as a project a number of years ago, and I'll give you that background, but a lot of the results I'll show you uh, are new. And uh, I don't know what the etiquette is here, but if people want to ask questions during the course of the talk, that's fine with me. 
So, so let me begin by giving you the background to this, the first part of the talk, and that was when tumor suppressor genes were first identified. Uh, they were found to be inactivated uh, by mutation or deletion. But over the past several decades, we've learned that a, uh, another way the tumor suppressor genes become inactivated, and it's often the predominant mechanism depending on the particular tumor suppressor gene and the particular cancer type, uh, is they become transcriptionally repressed by a process referred to as epigenetic silencing. And an epigenetically silenced tumor suppressor gene bears the hallmarks of heterochromatin, namely it has uh, hypermethylated DNA regions and inhibitory histone modifications. Uh, there's a lot of interest uh, in epigenetic silencing of tumor suppressor genes because unlike mutational inactivation, uh, epigenetically repressed tumor suppressor gene, which is irreversible, this process is potentially reversible, and in fact, there are some drugs that are FDA approved that are being used to treat cancer patients that uh, uh, work by uh, epigenetic reactivation of epigenetically repressed tumor suppressor genes. Now, uh, not only can, can genes be uh, inactivated at the individual gene level, but in fact, you can that in some cancers, there are thousands of genes that become inactivated. Uh, and these often uh, refer to as having a CPG island methylator phenotype. This has first been described in colorectal cancers, uh, but it's now found in several other cancers uh, as well. And in colorectal cancers, you can use these to actually classify tumors. They're stratified based on, they have prognostic implications, therapeutic implications. Uh, and uh, in some cases, they segregate with a type of oncoprotein that's present. KRAS positive colorectal cancers have often what's referred to as a simplo phenotype, uh, and BRAF positive colorectal cancers uh, have what's called a simpi phenotype. So, um, so the reason, so while while it was very clear that that tumors there, there's that tumor suppressor genes are frequently inactivated by epigenetic mechanisms, what was unclear was the basis by which that occurred during cancer development. And when we started this work, there were two uh, potential models that were proposed. Uh, one of these was a so-called random stochastic model, which said that there was an epigenetic event that occurred randomly. If it was on a tumor suppressor gene, uh, it led to decreased expression of the gene, and that conferred a growth advantage, so it was selected for. Uh, and another model posited that there was a directed pathway starting from the oncoprotein uh, and leading to the tumor suppressor gene. And we thought we can distinguish between these two models by doing loss of function screens. And if this model were correct, we would able, be able to define uh, discrete pathways, components and pathways. Uh, and so uh, we've developed now a general approach to do this kind of a screen. We've used it on many occasions, and I show an example here. Uh, what, we do, what we do is start with an, uh, a uh, epigenetically repressed tumor suppressor gene we want to study, in this case, P14-ARF. Uh, we use a, uh, a cell line, in this case, DLD1, human colorectal cancer adenocarcinoma cells, in which the endogenous P14-ARF gene is epigenetically silenced. And then we use a reporter gene strategy in which we fuse the promoter of interest to a blastocetin reporter gene. We stably introduce it into this DLD cell line. We select for cells in which the reporter gene was epigenetically silenced. Uh, and then we introduce into these cells pools of shRNAs, 
most of which will have no effect on the epigenetic silencing of this gene, but the rare SHRNA that would interfere with the component that in the pathway that was required for epigenetic silencing uh, would uh, lead to reactivation of the silenced gene uh, and allow for growth uh, in the presence of blastocytin. Uh, once we get the, these positive colonies, we go back to we identify the SHRNA by sequencing. We go back to the library uh, and ensure that the individual SHRNA confers the correct phenotype. And, in that time, and at that point, we use only endogenous genes. We only use this reporter strategy in the primary screen. Uh, and so um, we've done this now in a number of cases. Here are a few of the things we've learned. Uh, these screens have enabled us to identify factors that mediate epigenetic silencing of tumor suppressor genes in cancer cells. And then, once we have the candidates, we can use RNAi-mediated epistasis experiments to order these factors into a pathway. Uh, using this approach, we've delineated pathways that are initiated by oncoproteins, and they culminate in epigenetic silencing of tumor suppressor genes. And, and these pathways always involve a sequence-specific DNA binding protein that directs specificity and one of three DNA methyltransferases that direct hypermethylation. So here are just some examples uh, of uh, pathways that, we, that we've identified. Uh, here, there, I'll show, focus on these last two examples, which confer the SIM phenotype in KRAS-directed or BRAF-directed cells. Uh, they're initiated by oncoproteins. Uh, they uh, work then through a series of signaling proteins there's a critical DNA binding protein uh, that, um, uh, is that makes the first entrance onto the promoter, recruits a co-repressor complex, and one of uh, a specific DNA methyltransferase, in this case, DNMT1, uh, in this case, DNMT3B. Um, now, uh, this is the pathway that we, that we found in BRAF-positive colorectal cancer cells. It starts with BRAF works through the MAC-ERK signaling pathway. The critical DNA binding component is MAF-G, recruits a co-repressor complex, uh, and recruits DNMT3B. Uh, so this we found in colorectal cancer cells. Uh, B, this BRAF mutation, uh, is, uh, as many of you may know, is very prevalent in melanoma cells. It's present in 50, 70, 50 to 70 percent of melanomas. So more recently, we've looked at uh, this pathway uh, to see whether it also occurs not only in colorectal cells, but in, but in BRAF-positive melanoma cells. And this just shows an example of that, uh, with just one piece of evidence supporting it. This is BRAF-positive SKMEL28 cells. What I'm showing here is a panel of about 60 genes. These are SIMP marker genes that are frequently methylated in BRAF-positive colorectal cancer cells. Uh, and provide you know, diagnostic markers to classify whether a tumor has a, uh, has a SIMP phenotype. And, and we can see in all cases but four, if we knock down the same components that we found in the colorectal cancer pathway, MAFG, CHD8, BAC1, or DNMT3B, uh, that results in derepression of the genes in all but four cases. And the four exceptions shown by asterisks for whatever reason are not are active rather than being epigenetically silenced in colorectal cancer cells. So really this convinces us that, the, that epigenetic silencing always occurs through an instructive pathway, and the instructive pathway is so important that, it can, that the oncoprotein can direct it even across diverse, colore, diverse cancer types, colorectal cancer and MAFG.
Now, uh, there, there's an, uh, an implication of our findings. Uh, this shows the canonical model by which a RAS oncoprotein transforms cells, and it's largely believed to transform cells by stimulating downstream pathways, such as uh, RAF mat erg signaling or PI3 kinase signaling, that result in alterations in transcription and cell survival that drive transformation. But our results show that oh, through these same pathways, uh, that uh, RAS also directs epigenetic silencing of tumor suppressor genes. Likewise, here's the canonical model by a B, how BRAF transforms cells working through this proliferative pathway to uh, change transcription, cell cycle progression, and proliferation to transform cancer cells. But we've shown through this same pathway that you also, this also induces epigenetic silencing of tumor suppressor genes. So that means by promoting epigenetic silence in tumor suppressor genes, RAS and BRAF induce what we could refer to as secondary oncogenic events. And we speculate this is one of the reasons that these oncoproteins uh, become active or so frequently activated in human tumors. A few other lessons that we've learned from these studies, uh, if we knock down any components of these pathways or inactivate the oncoprotein, this results in a failure to recruit the D-methyltransferase, loss of promoter hypermethylation, and transcriptional derepression. And so that means that even maintenance of the DNA methylation state requires, uh, requires the oncoprotein uh, and the various components of the pathway. And this, again, was contrary to the prevailing model. This is a the prevailing, uh, the prevailing model at the time from Bob Weinberg's uh, excellent textbook on cancer. And what it shows is that hemimethylated DNA residues uh, become recognized by intrinsic activity of DNA methyltransferases during DNA replication and, be and are converted to the fully methylated form. And so the idea was that once you establish DNA methylation, it just became perpetuated, ep epigenetically transferred, and that it was essentially irreversible. And what our results show is that the silent state is stable, but it's not irreversible. And we could reverse that by, not, by uh, inactivating components of the pathway uh, that are involved either using biologicals or small molecule inhibitors. And I'll just, uh, I'll just show you an example of that. This is, uh, this is the KRAS-directed pathway uh, that mediates SIMP in uh, colorectal cancers. Uh, the way it functions uh, is that, it, uh, that KRAS stimulates transcription of several protein cofactors that are involved uh, in the stabilization of, of the transcription factor ZNF304. Normally, ZNF304 is rapidly degraded in normal cells, but in cancer cells, due to KRAS, you see upregulation of this D-ubiquitinase and the cofactor for the B-ubiquitinase uh, protein kinase called PRKD1. That leads to increased levels of ZNF304 in cancer cells, which drives promoter occupancy, that, leading to the recruitment of co-repressor complexes, including DNMT1. Now, we can reverse this and reactivate the epigenetically silenced tumor suppressor genes. Whoops, wasn't good. Oh. Either by using small, by SHRNAs, or by using small molecule inhibitors that are directed against promoter proximal factors, such as 5-ASA, DNMT1 over here, but our results also reveal that you can find unexpected upstream factors like PRKD1, and we can use inhibitors to PRKD1 
which also can lead to reactivation uh, of the tumor suppressor gene. And, and these may, on a, from a clinical perspective, have um, some desirable properties, for example, being more specific than general inhibitors of epigenetic regulators. Now, um, another important principle we've learned from studying all of these pathways is, is that always what the oncoprotein does uh, is that it, re it results in upregulation of a component that's involved in a pathway, and that explains why you see these, the genes repressed in cancer cells but not normal cells. So in this case over here, it's ZNF304 that becomes upregulated in cancer cells, and that leads to its occupancy uh, on the tumor suppressor gene promoter, which doesn't happen in normal cells. And while it's often the sequence-specific DNA binding protein, we found that all sometimes intermediates in the pathway can also be upregulated by the oncoprotein and drive transformation. And I'll just finish this part of the talk by showing, summarizing one example of this. This is the pathway by which RAS uh, mediates uh, repression of the tumor suppressor gene FAST. Uh, it's a rather extent, elaborate pathway. And one of the components we identified in it is a protein called TRIM37. TRIM37 has the sequence features of an E3 ubiquitin ligase, but its targets were unknown. Uh, we became very interested in it because we, we found that the TRIM37 gene is located in the 17Q23 chromosomal region. At, that's amplified in up to 40% of breast cancers. Now, we found that TRIM37 was bound to the epigenetically repressed fast promoter, and one of the uh, hallmarks of epigenetic repression, one of the chromatin marks, uh, is monoubiquitination of H2A. This is a chromatin uh, modification associated with transcriptional repression. And what we found is that TRIM37 is an H2A ubiquitin ligase. This is showing uh, its ability to ubiquitinate purified H2, uh, H2A or H2A in the context of a nucleosome. Uh, as I trim 37 in cells containing, the, in breast cancer cell lines containing this uh, amplif 2017Q23 amplification, that leads to a large increase in 17Q23 levels. And I'll just summarize, this work was published last year, I'll just summarize how this leads to transformation. Uh, we've showed that, seven, that, that this, the overexpressed trim 37 binds to the polycomb repressive complex two. This is a major repressive complex uh, in, um, in, in mammalian cells. Uh, and uh, it changes the specificity of the PRC2 and PRC polycomb complexes so that they now occupy a number of genes, including tumor suppressor genes that are normally unoccupied uh, in normal cells. And that leads to inactivation of the tumor suppressor gene and transformation. So um, that concludes the first portion of my talk. If there are no questions, I'll move on to the second. Uh, the second part of my talk has to do with this fundamental process that is involved in gene regulation, pre-mRNA splicing. Uh, splicing uh, occurs in a stepwise fashion through a complex machinery called the spliceosome. Um, and uh, we've had a long interest in splicing, studied it for a number of years. Now, uh, what, what got us interested in this particular project is work that came from, did not come from our labs, but came from a number of other labs having to do with cancer genome sequencing efforts. And uh, what, it, what it's been shown in uh, several uh, malignancies, uh, in particular myelodysplastic syndrome, 
acute myelogenous leukemia, uh, other hematopoietic malignancies, and in lung cancer, that cancer genome sequencing efforts identified recurrent mutations in a number of splicing factors. I think this was a very unexpected result. Most, I would argue that most cancer genome sequencing results were largely predictable, but this and perhaps mutations found in isocitrate dehydrogenase, I think, were really the two big surprises. Um, uh, uh, one of the major splicing factors that undergo mutations is a protein called U2AF35 or U2AF1, uh, and we've had really a longstanding interest uh, in this particular protein. So um, U2AF, uh, U2AF is a heterodimer. It's composed of the 65 kilodalton subunit, which recognizes the polypyrimidine tract near the three prime ends of introns. And this is the protein that undergoes mutation, U2AF35 or U2AF1, which recognizes the AG uh, at the three prime splice site. Uh, and and we, th this is a protein that really initiates spliceosome assembly, but somewhat by analogy, TBP, for example, in transcription. Uh, and as I said, we've studied this for a long time. We originally described its activity, uh, purified the protein, uh, and cloned subunits and worked out a, a lot of this. And, and much of this work, the key work, was done uh, in my lab a number of years ago by Phil Zaymore, uh, who's now a uh, professor at UMass, one of my colleagues, and one of the leaders in the field of uh, RNA interference research. So how do, uh, so, so we and, and a number of other labs became interested in how, why does mutation and this splicing factor lead to transformation? And so I think the obvious hypothesis was this would cause misplicing of some genes, oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes, uh, that would drive cells uh, in conjunction with other oncogenic events toward malignancy. Uh, and in support of that idea, there are a number of papers that were published which typically introduced the mutant U2AF35 into a cell line uh, and then did some kind of um, expression profiling, RNA-seq analysis, and indeed found that they could find a number of genes that were misspliced. But um, we were unsatisfied with these results because in no case was there shown to be a functional link with, linkage between the misplicing event uh, and the malignant phenotype. So we took an approach that was different in two ways uh, that I'll tell you about. Uh, the first is that we sought to, trans to, to transform cells with U2AF mutants, and so that we could then do functional studies to show any altered RNA processing event was related to the transformed phenotype. Uh, and uh, we've transformed several different cell lines uh, with the U2AF mutant, but the ones that we've done most of our work in uh, are a cell line called BAF3 cells. These are interleukin-3 dependent, immortalized most mouse bone marrow-derived pro-B cell. Uh, they can be transformed by a number of oncogenes, such as BCR able, enabling IL-3-independent growth. So this just shows uh, a typical experiment here. What we're doing uh, is we're taking uh, IL-3 cells, we're introducing various genes, oncogenes in there, and then withdrawing IL-3. And you'll see that the parental cells quickly die if you withdraw IL-3. If you transform, if you introduce BCR-ABLE, a very efficient oncogene, you'll see IL-3-resistant clones emerging quite rapidly. Uh, and we could also see IL-3-independent uh, clones with the U2AF35 mutant, but not wild-type U2AF35, and it emerged uh, at a much later time, and I'll come back to that. You could show that these cells are transformed. We can take them now, and we can do, put them, 
uh, into the flank of an immunocompromised mouse uh, and you get tumor growth. So we then took those, the transformed cell lines and compared them to parental uh, in an RNA-seq, uh, by doing RNA-seq analysis. And the second thing we did differently, I think, than these previous studies uh, is that in addition to affecting splicing, U2AF has also been shown to affect mRNA3 prime information. Uh, and so we analyzed, we bioinformatically analyzed our RNA-seq data using two algorithms. One of these, which is cufflinks, which tests for alternative use of splice sites, but we also used a, uh, a, a, an algorithm that we've was originally described and we've tweaked it a bit called LenPass, which is a modified algorithm to test for alternative use of mRNA3 ends, which I'll refer to as cleavage and polyadenylation sites. And so here's a summary uh, of our results. Uh, we found about 170 altered RNA splicing events uh, in, in, in cells transformed by the U2AF, oncogenic U2AF35 mutants. Uh, like the other groups, we found several different types of uh, RNA splicing alterations, but the most frequently altered RNA process event was increased use of, a, of the distal cleavage and polyadenylation site, which came up in almost 40% of the cases. Uh, we've taken about uh, a dozen of the genes which, based on the RNA-seq analysis, uh, appear to undergo altered CP site use, and here we're validating them uh, by uh, doing an RT-PCR assay testing for use, the relative use of the distal, or the proximal or the distal polyadenylation site. And you can see in all of the cases predicted by RNA-seq here, uh, we can show that indeed there is increased distal use of the CP site uh, in U2AF35 transformed cells. Now, we looked over all these candidates uh, and we decided to focus on uh, this one over here, which is called ATG7. And our rationale for focusing on ATG7 uh, is made in this slide. ATG7 encodes an essential autophagy factor Autophagy, as you probably know, is a context-dependent cancer prevention mechanism, uh, and loss of several essential uh, autophagy factors have been, such as Betlin-1 and ATGF-5, have been previously shown to contribute to tumor genesis. But the observation we felt that was most important is that mice, uh, a previous study had shown that mice in which ATG-7 had been conditionally depleted in hematic poetic cells have an autophagy defect and develop a, a, a myelodysplastic-like syndrome. Um, so I, I'm going to tell I'll, I'm going to I'm going to tell you uh, about uh, uh, how we think the this the U2AF mutant transform cells. Uh, but first, I want to want you just to briefly mention that we understand uh, why the mutant leads to all distal CP site use. And I this is a mechanistic study, and I'm rather I'm going to. I'd rather focus on the cancer-related mechanisms for this particular talk, but, but I would just want to show you how we think this works, that uh, there's a, uh, a factor called CFIM. This is a factor that binds to the proximal CP site and regulates alternative CP site selection. CFIM is a heterodimer, and it's either compo it's composed of a common 25 kilodalton subunit and a 59 kilodalton subunit that increases use of the proximal CP site, or a 68 kilodalton subunit that decreases use of the proximal 68 uh, proximal CP site. So there's two antagonistic complexes. 
Uh, and what we found is that in wild type U2AF, it's pretty, that, that, that uh, it bound, bound to the site is the CFIM 59 complex. And with the mutant, uh, the mutant has decreased affinity for this complex winding up in and winding up in recruitment of this 68 kilodalton complex over here. So there's, there's two different complexes that are, uh, that are recruited depending on whether it's a wild type or a mutant, and that explains the altered CP site use. And I'll just show you one piece of data in support of that idea. This is an RNA immunoprecipitation assay, which is analogous to a chip assay. It allows you to monitor binding of proteins of specific sites on RNA. Here we're looking at binding to the proximal CP site in parental cells or in U2AF35S34F transform cells. You can see that in parental cells, it's primarily bound by 59 and not by 68, whereas in the mutant cells, it's predominantly bound by um, by the 68, um, uh, yeah, by 60, 68, oh, this is a mislabel, should be 68 over, uh, so, no, 68 and not 59 over here. So uh, two different complexes recruited, whether wild type uh, or mutant cells, and we think that explains uh, the change in CP site use. Now, why does CP, altered CP site use lead to um, transformation? So, uh, as you probably know, you throw, uh, this uh, CP site use, the increased CP site use, distal use will ca uh, cause a lengthened three prime UTR, and lengthened three prime UTRs are often subject to translational repression. And so, here uh, is an immunoblot assay, and you can see indeed that if we look at uh, parental cells or BCR able transform cells, they contain much higher levels of ATG7 than in the U2AF35 transform cells. Uh, and you could, we could further demonstrate that the lengthened three prime UTR is a translationally repressive element by linking it to a luciferase, luciferase reporter gene. And you could see that the long three prime UTR results in decreased luciferase activity. So, um, so this suggested to us that the decrease in ATG7 protein levels in U2AF35S34F transform cells was responsible for transformation. And consistent with that idea, if we simply knock down ATG7 in BAF3 cells with an SHRNA, uh, we can uh, see that you, that leads to IL3 independent growth. And if you take those cells and you put it in a an immunocompromised mouse, it leads to tumor formation, uh, in indicating that the cells are transformed. Now, why, now um, we, we then went on to study, study the basis of transformation due to uh, loss of ATG7 levels. Uh, we first confirmed that U2AF35 uh, um, S34F transform cells have an expected autophagy defect. Here we're looking at two auto markers of autophagy, LC3B1 and P62. Uh, and you can see that in uh, the ATG7 knockdown cells, which are expected to have an autophagy defect because this is an essential autophagy factor, uh, you see increased P62 and LC3B1 levels, same as in U2AF35S34F transform cells. These are basal conditions. We could also look under conditions which induce autophagy by treating cells with PP242. This is an inhibitor of mTOR. These are normal cells, uh, parental cells, or control uh, cells expressing a non-silencing SIRNA. There's a large increase in autophagy. 
as measured by a staining, uh, using a stain that measures autophagic vesicles. Uh, but you could see in the uh, ATG7 knockdown cells and the U2AF35 transformed cells uh, that they can't respond, indicative of an autophagy defect. So why does autophagy defect lead to transformation? So one thing that's been uh, previously shown is that a defect in autophagy leads to mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, and here we're analyzing mitochondrial dysfunction uh, in the U2AF35 transform cells and as a control ATGC knockdown cells. And we see that both cell types uh, have, have increased uh, mitochondrial mass uh, as measured by mitotracker green staining. Uh, they have an increased uh, mitochondrial membrane potential as measured by mitochondrial red staining. And perhaps most importantly, they have increased superoxide, dis, uh, superoxide levels uh, as measured by staining uh, of mitosox. And so these cells have a mitochondrial dysfunction. The increased uh, reactive oxygen species predict that these cells may have genomic instability. Uh, we've tested that by measuring their spontaneous mutation rate. Uh, and this, this we're doing uh, using uh, HPRT, an inhibitor of H, uh, 6-thioguanine, an inhibitor of HPRT, or Wabane, an inhibitor of a sodium-potassium ATPase, and looking for resistance to these two drugs. And you could see that both the ATG7 knockdown cells and the U2AF35 transformed cells have an increased spontaneous mutation rate. Now, um, the, the final uh, piece of evidence that I want to show you before telling you the model by which we think the, the transformation occurs is we looked to ask whether U2AF35 is required in addition for initiation of the transfer state and also for the maintenance. So to do that, we derived a doxycycline-inducible cell line uh, and uh, so that we can remove following transformation <laughs> We can get rid of uh, oncogenic U2AF35 by removing doxycycline. And you can see that works very nicely. These are transformed cells. We now remove doxycycline. That leads to loss of um, U2AF35 S34F. Uh, you see if you now measure CP site use uh, of ATG7, this is it in the, control, in the starting cell population. It goes back down to normal. You could look, it restores ATG7 protein levels. This is the starting transform cell. This is what happens uh, after you reduce uh, the mute. So everything is reversible here except for transformation. These cells can now still grow uh, in, the, in, in the presence, in the absence of, of IL-3, indicating that they are still transformed despite the fact that they no longer express this oncogenic protein. Uh, and so this, this indicates that U2AF35 is required for initiation but not maintenance of the transformed state. So, um, so this is now our working model of how we think this mutant transformed cells, first in, starting in parental cells, uh, you see uh, predominant use of the proximal ATG7CP site because of recruitment of this of the CFIM complex containing the 59 kilodalton subunit. In transformed cells, the predominant, uh, there's predominant recruitment onto the proximal CP site of a CFIM complex with a 68 kilodalton subunit, and that, that leads to use of the distal cleavage and polyadenylation site. That leads to reduction in ATG7 protein levels, uh, autophagy defect, mitochondrial dysfunction, genomic instability, 
acquisition of secondary mutations which lead to transformation. And I think that this also explains why, in contrast to BCR-able transformation of BAF3 cells, which occurs quite rapidly, uh, the transformation uh, of, uh, by U2AF 35S34F is a more, it takes longer period of time because it takes that amount of time to acquire the secondary mutations. So if there, that the, concludes the second portion of my talk. If there are no questions, I'll, I'll move on to the third portion. Uh, we'll say one, just fine, one final slide that we wanted to test the clinical relevance uh, of this result. And so we collaborated with a group, Azaraza, and a group at Columbia Medical Center to acquire uh, MD, uh, patient samples, um, uh, pa samples from patients who, uh, who had MDS. Uh, we, we, uh, these samples are of two types, uh, one that contain wild-type U2AF35, that is transformation occurs by some other event, uh, and ones that bear the U2AF35, that's 34F mutation. And we measure in these bone marrow samples a relative use of the uh, distal and proximal ATG7CP site uh, by uh, QRTP, CRSA. And what you could see is that we, there's a statistically significant increased use of the distal CP site in MDS patient samples bearing this mutation, very consistent with our cell culture results. Uh, we've also probed uh, the TCGA uh, data set, uh, AML data set, 30% of uh, MDS patients progress to acute myelogenous leukemia. Uh, and the U2AF34, the, the same mutation has been found and found in AML. Uh, and again, we could see a statistically significant increased use uh, of the distal CP site. So we think our cell culture results are also relevant to what goes on in MDS and AML patients. Okay, so the third part of the talk um, started, the work started a number of years ago when we were trying to study uh, this anti uh, tumor mechanism called oncogene-induced senescence and apoptosis. And uh, as many of you may know, if you take an activated oncogene and you introduce it into a primary cell, you don't get transformation. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. What you'll induce is an anti-cancer mechanism uh, to prevent further uh, proliferation. And the cells will, depending upon the cell type and the oncogene, uh, will either undergo apoptosis, uh, cell suicide, uh, or uh, they'll induce senescence, a permanent state of growth arrest. Uh, and it's now clear from a number of studies that oncogene-induced senescence and apoptosis is a fail-safe mechanism that prevents proliferation of cells at risk for neoplastic transformation. Now, uh, so a number of years ago, we decided to study this in the context of the BRAF oncogene, which I've already talked a bit about. BRAF oncogene encodes a serine threonine protein kinase. Uh, it's a downstream effector of RAS. Uh, it signals through a MAP kinase pathway, BRAF MEC ERK, uh, and that drives proliferation. Um, BRAF is a proto-oncogene. It becomes an oncogene when it acquires an activating mutation. Uh, this almost always happens at a single residue, uh, V600, and almost always changes it to an E. And this substantially increases protein kinase activity, resulting in constitutive uh, BRAF mechanic signaling. Uh, and as I've already alluded to, this is this this mutation is found in a number of different solid tumors, but it's particularly prevalent in melanoma. Uh, melanoma is a very good system to study this particular problem. Uh, because uh, in addition to melanoma itself, there's this benign um, uh, 
this benign tumor called nevus or a mole. These cells are growth-arrested. Growth they can persist for decades without enlarging. They have characteristic molecular features of senescent cells. And 80% of these cells contain an activating BRAF mutation. So this is a case uh, in which uh, the cell has acquired an activating uh, oncogenic event, uh, but, it prevents, uh, but it prevents it from going on to forming cancer. And this is a case where uh, somehow that anti-cancer prevention mechanism has been disabled. And, and so we wanted to try to understand that by identifying the factors that were involved in the ability of BRAF to cause senescence in cells. So we designed a large-scale loss-of-function screen, uh, which is shown over here. Uh, we began with, for technical reasons, with human uh, foreskin, a primary cell line human foreskin fibroblasts. Uh, we introduced SHRNA, label, uh, SHRNA libraries in a pooled format. We then induced senescence in these cells by uh, introducing with a virus an activated BRAF mutation. This induces senescence. Most of these shRNAs will have no effect, but the rare shRNA that interfered with the ability of BRAF to mediate senescence would uh, allow these uh, to grow. Um, and uh, we, we then took colonies of cells, identified the shRNA, confirmed the candidates first in PFFs and then in the more relevant subtype uh, melanocytes. Uh, so that screen worked well for us, and it allowed us to identify 17 factors that required for BRAF to uh, induce senescence in foreskin fibroblasts or um, uh, melanomas. And this just shows an example of that. Uh, here we've taken in, um, in control cells, we seed a small number of cells, they form a lawn. Uh, but if you take a small number of cells and introduce a BRAF oncogene, they become growth-arrested. Uh, and you'll see essentially no growth. But if we knock down any of these 17 factors, that allows uh, normal growth, even in the presence of, of an activated BRAF oncogene. So what are these factors? So uh, they're shown over here, the 17 factors with their intracellular location. Most of them have, have a um, intracellular location that we would have expected. They're present in the nucleus or in the cytoplasm where they're involved in processes such as transcription or cell signaling. Three of these at the time uh, we, we did the study were known tumor suppressor genes. This is an anti-cancer prevention mechanism, so we would have anticipated tumor suppressor genes. The three include P53, uh, MEN1, uh, and BNIP3L, a pro-apoptotic protein. Uh, and then subsequent, and subsequent to the studies, we've been able to show two others are indeed tumor suppressors, FBXO31, PA15. But what surprised us at the time, and will be the focus uh, uh, going forward, uh, is this protein here called IGFBP7. This is really a protein, a poorly understood protein from a molecular uh, point of view, at least when we started these studies. And it was a secreted protein, and that suggested to us that there would be at least a component of oncogene-induced senescence that would work by an autocrine-paracrine mechanism. So we went on to study the role of IGF-BP7 uh, in melanocytes, nevi, and melanoma, and I'll just summarize uh, what we learned. So uh, if you start, start with melanocytes, uh, we found that IGF-BP7 is synthesized uh, and secreted at a low basal level. And what we were able to show uh, was that it is an inhibitor of BRAF mechanic signaling. In addition, its, its transcription is downstream of BRAF, BRAF mechanic signaling, which establishes this uh, autocrine loop 
which we think puts a break on BRAF network signaling, uh, not only in melanocytes, but in many other primary cells. So uh, what happens if these cells acquire an activating mutation? So that leads to a large increase uh, in BRAF activity. Uh, that leads to a large increase in the synthesis, in the, in the uh, transcription synthesis and secretion of IGF-BP7, which then induces senescence in these cells through both inhibition of BRAF mechanic signaling, this proliferative signaling pathway, as well as activation of dedicated senescence genes, uh, which we identified in our screen. These uh, five genes of, over here, for, go, for example, become transcriptionally upregulated under these conditions. So this is an example of a successful tumor suppression mechanism. The cell acquires an oncoprotein, but it doesn't go on to form a tumor. So to form a tumor, this mechanism has to be disabled. And what we were able to find is that it was disabled. And in many cases, it's due to epigenetic silencing of IGF-BP7, leading to uncontrolled proliferation. And in fact, uh, I didn't point it out, but in that panel of the 60 SIMP genes, IGF-BP7 is a SIMP gene. It becomes frequently inactivated by trend epigenetic silencing in both melanoma and in colorectal cancers as well. So, uh, so these cells now uh, are oncogenic, but what we found is they're exquisitely sensitive to IGF-BP7. And so if we introduce recombinant IGF-BP, if we introduce IGF-BP7 either as a recombinant protein or through an expression plasmid, uh, these cells undergo apoptosis. And the apoptosis occurs for two reasons. One is inhibition of BRAF uh, MECRC signaling. These cells are addicted to that pathway. Uh, in addition, there's an activation of a dedicated apoptotic program uh, resulting from, from several of the genes that we identified uh, in the primary screen. So this um, experiment shown over here uh, is really an example of a well-established concept in cancer biology, and that is that if you have a uh, cell that has lost a tumor suppressor gene and you reintroduce the tumor suppressor gene back into the cell, you'll have a beneficial effect either by uh, inducing growth arrest and apoptosis. And, and there are probably, there are hundreds, maybe over a thousand papers that have shown this in cultured cells. Uh, and in a, probably a dozen or more cases, this has gone to the next step. You have people have engineered mouse models that show re-expression of tumor suppressor genes can attenuate tumor growth. And, and this, this kind of evidence has even led to clinical trials where people try to reintroduce tumor suppressor genes such as P53 uh, or BACA1 using some kind of gene therapy approach. And, and while, while this approach is conceptually sound, it's technically very challenging because first these are intracellular signaling proteins, so you have to introduce the gene, not the protein, into the cell. And because it's a tumor, you have to introduce it into virtually all cells if you're going to have a beneficial effect. But for a secreted tumor suppressor gene, it becomes much easier because here all you have to do is get the protein, not the gene, and you only have to get it to the outside of the cell. So that suggested to us that IGF-BP7 may have some therapeutic potential. Uh, and, we, and at the time to demonstrate that, uh, what we did is the kind of experiments shown here. We took recombinant IGF-BP7. Uh, we, injured, we made xenografts in mice either containing an activated BRAF oncogene or as a control. Uh, wild-type um, melanomas. 
uh, when the tumor reached a certain size, we took recombinant IGF-BP7 and we introduced it systemically through tail vein injection and we monitored tumor growth. And what we found is we got very good suppression of melanomas that had an activated BRAF oncogene, but not the wild type, uh, and this was dose-dependent. Um, now, more recently, uh, we've developed another platform by which we can induce IGF-BP7 and, and other secreted tumor suppressor genes. And, and this uh, experiment's all done uh, in collaboration with my colleague, Wang Pingao, who's director of the Gene Therapy Center at UMass, involved the use of AAV vectors. Uh, these are probably the, um, the vector of choice now for most gene therapy scenarios. And, and the way we do these particular experiments is we introduce a transgene into an AAV vector. Uh, we introduce the AAV into a muscle cell of the mouse. We turn the muscle cell of the mouse into an IGF-BP7 biomanufacturing facility. It makes IGF-BP7. It becomes secreted from the muscle cell. It then goes through the circulation and finds a tumor and has an effect. And this is very different than any other gene therapy approach for cancer that I know of, which in almost every other case uh, involves oncolytic viruses. Um, so this is not even introducing uh, the um, gene of interest into the tumor, it's introducing it into a muscle cell. So uh, here we're doing, uh, showing the same kind of approach. Uh, we use an AAV9 vector, which is muscle trophic. Uh, we form a tumor uh, in uh, the right flank of the nude mouse. We introduce uh, AAV9 expressing IGF-BP7 or a control AAV9 vector into the anterior, anterior tibialis muscle of the contralateral leg, and then we monitor tumor growth. Uh, and you can see here we're using two different uh, AAV vectors, uh, and we get very good tumor growth suppression. That's for SKMEL28 cells. This is another BRAF-positive human melanoma cell line, M239 cells. These, this is a very aggressive tumor. You can see in the control and treated animals, we have to terminate the experiment to stay within compliance of the IACUC protocol uh, by 17 days. But uh, animals expressing AAV9, IGF, BP7, you see almost complete tumor regression. Uh, and this is a uh, RAS-positive colorectal cancer cell line, same kind of an experiment that we had previously shown is also susceptible to IGF-BP7. Now, um, as, I, as I mentioned, when we first found IGF-BP7, it was really serendipitous. In fact, we were surprised at the time the secreted tumor suppressor was involved. But now, knowing that uh, and, and seeing the potential therapeutic uh, advantage of the secreted tumor suppressor gene, we've more gone, gone after We've developed a program to proactively look for other secreted tumor suppressors, and it's briefly outlined over here. We first identify genes through databases, public databases. We identify genes that are down-regulated in cancer cells versus normal tissues, and these are candidate tumor suppressors. We then select those genes that are bioinformatically predicted to encode secreted proteins, we clone and express the proteins and test for their ability to selectively kill human cancer cells, but not non-transformed cells. And so um, I'll tell you about one example where this seems to have worked quite well, uh, and it's a protein called SRPX, which we think is a secreted uh, lung tumor suppressor uh, that has some therapeutic potential. This protein uh, has been down-regulated. We saw in databases in many human lung cancers, and it's predicted to encode a secreted protein 
This is an experiment that we've done. We've taken lung cancer samples, adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinomas, and we've analyzed SRPX expression by QRT-PCR. This is a normal lung, and you could see in many cases there's very strong downregulation uh, of SRPX. Uh, we said it, it we, we thought it encoded a secreted protein. Here's, the, here's an experiment that demonstrates that if we take SRPX and we introduce it into 293 T cells, we look in the cell extract, we see a protein. But if you look in the conditioned medium, uh, you see that's the majority of the protein. It has a different higher molecular weight, and that's because it's glycol like many other secreted proteins, it becomes glycosylated during the secretion process. And you could prove that by uh, taking the uh, the secreted uh, SRPX and treating it uh, with a glycosylase and showing it reduces down to its non-glycosylated form. Uh, we, we've taken then uh, SRPX, either the conditioned medium or purified from the conditioned medium, and, and here we're treating four uh, lung cancer, human lung cancer cell lines that come from the NCI-60 panel, uh, and you can see we get very potent killing effect by contrast, if we take non-transformed lines, MRC5 fibroblast or human bronchothelial epithelial cell lines that are immortalized, uh, we see um, really very little uh, effect of killing. So it looks like it's selective for human cancer cell, lung cancer cell lines and, and other transforms and other types of cancers. So uh, we've uh, in so in these final experiments, what we're doing is we're taking SRPX and showing we can deliver it with an AAV vector using the same protocol I showed you for IGF-BP7. Uh, here we're using A549 lung cancer cells that are either starting with 100 or 200 millimeter tumor sizes. This is HOP92, another lung cancer cell line, uh, a colorectal cancer cell line, uh, and another colorectal cancer cell line. And you see in all cases, to varying degrees, we get very uh, potent anti-tumor effects. So. Um, we're excited by this approach. Uh, we think, uh, here are some of the reasons why. This is based upon a natural cancer prevention mechanism. We're just restoring what has been, uh, been removed through oncogenic events from the cell. We think it's applicable to many uh, types of cancers. It's relative, as a drug development program, it's relatively rapid. Most cancer drug development programs uh, are based upon finding a target and then looking for inhibitors of the target, whereas here we start out with a first-generation inhibitor, and then uh, the future drug development steps we think are fairly well established. Uh, so I just want to finish up by acknowledging the people who've been involved in the work. Uh, a number of people over, we've worked on this pro problem for a long time, oncoprotein-directed tumor suppressor gene silencing. A number of people have been involved uh, but uh, some of the more recent work that I showed you comes from Mingang Fong, a post current postdoc in the lab, and Ryan Serra, a previous graduate student. Uh, in oncogenic splicing factor directed transformation, uh, the work was almost all carried out by a postdoc in the lab, Sungmi Park. We had a very uh, important collaboration, I said, with Aza Raza at Columbia University Medical Center and her. Um, uh, myelodysplasia group, uh, which includes Siddhartha Mukherjee, which many of you might know is the author of The Emperor of All Maladies, and it's been a lot of fun interacting with him. Uh, and then finally, a number of people over the years have been involved in oncoprotein-directed senescence and apoptosis. Uh, in it started with work from Narendra Wajpee, uh, who was a postdoc in the lab and is currently an uh, independent faculty member at Yale. 
Uh, and then the AAV work has been principally done in my lab by Sachita Bhatnagar, a former postdoc in the lab who just became her, began her faculty position in August uh, at Virginia, at the University of Virginia Department of Biochemistry. And this work we never would have done if it were not for uh, Guang Pingtao being at UMass directing a world-class uh, gene therapy center. And with that, uh, I thank you for your attention and be happy to take any questions. Um, thank you so much for your talk. I'm just wondering for the part of your talk where you mentioned uh, the discovery of IGF-BP7 um, as a sort of like senescence inhibitor in BRAF-V600E yes. uh, transform uh, infected cells. I'm just wondering because you said the molecular biology of this um, protein is not very well known. Do you know the receptor for it? Have you seen the receptor in the screen? That's great. That's a great question. Um, we, um, we, we predicted there would be a receptor. The receptor wasn't known. We did it, the receptor did not come out of the screen. That's not surprising to me because many, most of these screens, almost all of these screens, are not saturating, so we don't get everything. But we have done a screen subsequently uh, to identify the receptor, and the screen. Uh, I, I like it's not published yet, but I like the screen quite a lot. What we what we did is we simply looked for shRNAs that conferred resistance to IGF-BP7 mediated killing. And that gave us a number of factors, including the receptor. So it's, it's more than one. Oh, it's more than one. Yeah, it's more. It's more. It's more than one factor. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's not more than one receptor. It's one receptor, and then it's a number of downstream signaling. Okay. Uh, so from the list where you picked the ATG7 gene, there uh, there were several other hits. Do you expect those to be just collateral damage of? U2A37 that have been misregulated, or do you carry out It's a good question. Certainly, some, some of those, I think many of them are irrelevant. They're just passenger, you know, they're just passenger changes in CP site use. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of them contributed to the transform phenotype as well. In, in your first part of your talk, you had the, the uh, oncogene, or sorry, the grass or whatever uh, mediated silencing of genes, right? Right. Do you, does that supported by genetics? In cells that have a RAS mutation, are there fewer tumor suppressors that are mutationally inactivated, where they would become unnecessary if you're being silenced purely by epigenetic mechanisms? I don't know. We've never done that. That I mean, it's an interesting question. We've never done that kind of an analysis to, to look in. Yeah, I'm not sure also what, I mean, we could do it, and if it came out positive, that would be great. If it didn't, I mean, there could be other oncoproteins other than RAS, BRAF being one of them, overexpressed HOXB3 being another, that also causes transcriptional silencing. Um, it's also, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to do the, I think it's hard to do the analysis because in general, if the proteins, if there's not a recurrent mutation in the tumor suppressor gene, you don't know if it's epigenetic silence or not just by looking, you know, at typical, you know, cancer genome sequencing slash epigenetic profiling data. You showed that oncogenetic um, alteration of polyethylation yes. contributes to cancer. Does proto-oncogene regulation of polyethylation uh, contribute to normal development or normal cell gene expression? 
proto-oncogen. function of the normal counterpart of the no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think that the, I, I think you're only s seeing that because the, the protein becomes, over, you know, overactive. It, it actually, but actually, now that you mentioned it, it reminds me to tell you that there's, there's a, a lot of work, a large body of work, some of it started by Dave Bertel, showing that, that uh, there are changes in, in CP site use that accompany transformation. Uh, he's published several papers. But in general, what he's found it's in the opposite direction. He finds it's greater proximal CP site use. So I, I think it's a, you know, it's a derangement that happens. I mean, it may happen to some extent. I don't know if anybody's ever, you know, tested carefully whether wild-type U2AF has some, I mean, it does have some effect on 3' end formation. As I said, that's why we went into it in the first place. Uh, but I don't know how much it contributes to alternative CPAC use, use in a wild-type cell. Do you think that epigenetic silencing of a tumor suppressor is ever a seminal event in, trans in transformation? You've certainly shown it's a secondary event, and those pathways exist, but... Do I think it's ever an initiating event? Yeah. No. Because that would be the round. I mean, that would be the random model. You know, so all of our results suggest that you need an oncoprotein first before you see silencing of the tumor suppressor. So based on that, then why would BRAD lead to senescence and not to a tumor suppressor gene silencing? How did? Why did? Why would BRAF lead to senescence? Be necessary. If there was a senescence event, wouldn't it be necessary that the tumor suppressing gene silencing will occur independent? It might. It, it, it very well might might occur in in those cases, but but the cells are rested, so it doesn't go on. You know, even even though it has the BRAF oncogenic event and maybe a secondary oncogenic event of a, of a um, silenced tumor suppressor. How does SRPX kill We don't, you know, we really don't know. It's very unlike IGFBP7, where we kind of understand the molecular details. We SRPX again. If you do a literature search, it's there's evidence it's a tumor suppressor, but there's no understanding of what its biochemical mechanism is. It's called SRPX because the S stands for sushi repeats, which is just a protein folding, uh, you know, a protein domain, you know, and so really nobody understands it. Uh, again, we're trying to figure that out, and again, we're doing it by doing a uh, loss-of-function screen in which we're looking for SHRNAs uh, or uh, Cas9 CRISPRs, uh, guide RNAs, uh, that confer resistance to SRPX killing. Sorry, so yeah. the idea from finding secreted tumor suppressor genes that you can essentially then produce them and just have them as a shot? To kill tumor cells? It sounds easy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering, because yeah. you mentioned the pharmacologic approach later, and I'm just wondering. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I mean, in theory, yes, that's, I, I think you can do that. Um, and, you know, but, but, you know, manufacturing it and having, making sure it's bioactive and all of the other stuff and getting it at the right concentrations is all technically challenging. But conceptually, yes. So you showed a diagram which IGF-BP7 feeds back to inhibit the RAF pathway, yeah. but also causes apoptosis. Apop, it only causes uh, apop, 
apoptosis um, when we introduced, there it was causing, it wasn't even causing senescence. In that first diagram I showed you where it feeds back, there it's just putting a little bit of, it's attenuating BRAF network signaling and proliferation. It's partially reducing it. The only time I showed you where it do, induces apoptosis is in cells in which have lost that pathway. IGFBP7 is not expressed. So and we're introducing large amounts of recombinant so protein. The effect is on blocking the pathway. That's right. That's one of its activities. So um, there are a variety of mechanisms that activate the pathway, some of which get treated by drugs, which then they get around that. Right. right. Like paraffinated yeah. resistance. Yeah. Will it still work? Well, that's a good question. So we don't know till we do it. One reason, uh, so one reason to think that it might be more effective than just a pathway block inhibitor, uh, which I had mentioned but didn't go into great detail on, is in, in addition to just inhibiting that pathway, it introduces a dedicated apoptotic program, which culminates in increased BNF3L levels, which induce apoptosis. So it's really working by two. It's, so that's what I was, yeah. that's what I was yeah. trying Yeah, it's working by two separate, it's killing the cells by two separate mechanisms. So it may be harder to acquire resistance to IGF-BP7 than a typical pathway inhibitor. Thank you very much. And if there are any other questions, please come down and ask Dr.